welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Charles Fisher. And Charles is a scientist and he's got interest at the intersection of physics, machine learning and computational biology. And he's the founder of unlearn.ai. Previously, Charles worked as a machine learning engineer at Leap Motion and a computational biologist at Pfizer. He was a Philip Meyer Fellow in Theoretical Physics at École Normale Supérieure in Paris, France, and a postdoctoral scientist in biophysics at Boston University. Charles has got a PhD in biophysics from Harvard and a BS in biophysics from the University of Michigan. And so Unlearn is the only company to create digital twins to populate intelligent control arms in clinical studies. And we're going to tell you all about that in the next hour. So enjoy. So Charles, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I say this morning, it's actually deep into the afternoon for me. Um, yeah, it's, so I've already it's made very early in the morning for me. <laughs> Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, Charles? Uh, from San Francisco. San Francisco, very nice. What part? Uh, I am actually on the, there's a, a tourist attraction uh, called this crooked part of Lombard Street. Um, and I actually oh, right. live on that tourist attraction. So, oh, very nice, <laughs> very nice. Surrounded by tourists, what a life! <laughs> yeah, not now, right? Right now, because I of imagine all of not. No. It's, it's actually uh, completely cleared out, but normally surrounded by tourists. Yeah, I imagine uh, nice and quiet, or eerily quiet. Um, nice and quiet. I would. Nice I and personally quiet. would say, yeah, that it's been nice having a, a break from the tourists. Yeah. How are you doing? Are you, I suppose you're working from home, right? How, how are you finding that? Yeah. I've been working from home now for a, probably two months, I think. Um, and yeah, it hasn't been, uh, it really hasn't been that bad, I would say. Mm. Um, I think that uh, really the whole team uh, has been able to, I think, adapt pretty well to it. It is funny, actually, that the, the last few of these episodes, we've, we've tended to talk about this at the, at the very beginning about just, the, I guess, the new normal. And I think how the working life, the way that you run a team, leadership, it's all had to kind of change. And I think there's there's far more trust, actually, of, of people working from home than than people would have initially thought. I think it seems to be a surprising bit in the system that actually people are like, oh, people are actually fine working from home. We don't necessarily need these expensive offices. It'll be an interesting interesting thing to see what happens after this in terms of returning back to the old way of doing things, so to speak. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's already the case that some of the big tech companies have announced that they won't go back to the old way of doing things. Yeah, was it Twitter that said that recently? Yeah, Twitter is going yeah. full, uh, full at allowing people to work remote. And yeah, I think that the longer this goes on, the more companies are going to do that, right? If you've been remote for a full year, what's the point uh, that, uh, you know, of, of do you know what? It's going to be strange. Well, it's going to be, yeah, interesting, certainly what that does for sort of global recruitment, because if you're, if you're not worried about the kind of geographical barrier of, of the commute, then actually, yeah, do global roles become a bit easier? Do you hire a dev team globally a bit? You know, all these different things, I guess, start coming into play, don't they? Yeah, it's interesting. Of course, the uh, the time difference, as we were talking at the beginning, does, <laughs> yeah. does make it difficult to schedule calls and things. But that is true. 
That is true. Anyway, we digress. So Charles, yeah, really looking forward to having you on, mate. Um, yeah, I got an email through about you guys and yeah, had a look at a load of your stuff and yeah, was just really keen to get you on. So yeah, really excited to talk to you. Um, and I guess, yeah, the way that we start these episodes is to get you to tell your story, sir. So for the benefit of our audience, yeah, tell us, tell us about you and, and how you got to where you are. Sure. Okay. So I, Went to college at the University of Michigan. Um, and when I started, actually, I guess when I really, when I started college, I did not know what I wanted to do uh, that, that much. And I was taking uh, just a variety of whatever requirements classes they would have. But um, uh, I got a, after my freshman year, so after my first year at college, I uh, got a job. I was thinking about maybe going to medical school. Um, so I got a job doing uh, research, magnetic resonance imaging research um, at a radiology department. And I ended up being more interested in the physics of the MRI than in the use of the MRI for medicine. Wow. Um, and so that kind of changed my direction. And I ended up deciding to study biophysics. So I did my uh, bachelor's degree in biophysics at Michigan. Uh, then I went on to get a PhD in biophysics uh, at Harvard University. Um, although that's always a bit complicated because my degree says Harvard, and I went to Harvard, but I wrote my, uh, my dissertation in a laboratory at, uh, with Colin Stoltz at MIT. So I actually spent the majority of my time in graduate school at MIT, not at Harvard, uh, but they're right down the street from each other. So, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I studied uh, protein folding. Um, actually studied proteins that don't fold. So there's this class of proteins, something like 30% or something that, that we've discovered that people call intrinsically disordered proteins that don't fold. And so I was using molecular simulations and statistical methods to study what these proteins look like and how they function. But then I went on, did uh, postdoctoral fellowships uh, at Boston University and at Ecole de Massacurier in Paris, uh, where I was working on different applications of machine learning to biology. And that could be a variety of things. So I have one paper where we analyzed uh, butterfly populations in a rainforest in Borneo. Uh, <laughs> wow. I have other papers looking at, you know, uh, uh, bacteria in the gut microbiome. Uh, so it's sort of like a variety of, of different things. Did you get to go to Borneo? I did not get, I did not do any field work. Uh, oh, I, yeah, I spent about a, about two years really thinking hard about like theoretical ecology and ways machine learning and other physics and things could, could think about theoretical ecology. And I got invited to go on a fishing trip with an ecologist, <laughs> not like fishing for like recreational, but like fishing for studying fish. Uh, but I, I didn't, I didn't take him up on it. So, oh. um, uh, but, but after, so after I was living in Paris, um, and I ended up, uh, moving back to, back to Boston to take a job at Pfizer. And I was working, uh, as a machine learning scientist, uh, kind of doing two things. One was uh, microbiome studies because I was uh, doing some microbiome research before and I was really one of the first people uh, at Pfizer who had ever done any microbiome studies. So we did wow. uh, this big microbiome study uh, at Pfizer and that, that was an interesting thing to be a part of. But most of what I did uh, was really working on data from clinical trials. 
uh, and thinking about how could we use machine learning to uh, improve those processes, either to make them more efficient or to improve the probability of success, which is really quite low. Mm. Um, and, and so that's really where I got exposed to this concept of how, you know, thinking about machine learning and thinking about clinical trials, which is what I work on today. But I, I also kind of got exposed to how difficult it was. You know, there were a lot of things that we were trying to do, and I wouldn't say that we were always uh, very successful. Uh, yeah, I would say more often than not, we weren't successful. Um, so after Pfizer, I, uh, kind of took a real left turn. So all of my research up until this point, everything that I've ever worked on has been related to biology in some way. Um, but I got this opportunity to move out to San Francisco to work at a virtual reality company. And to, uh, basically the, the goal of this is coming that I did what people call hand tracking. So let's imagine that you have a virtual object. And you want to be able to interact with it, but you don't want to need a controller or anything like that. You should just be able to reach out and just grab it with your hand and manipulate it. Uh, So how do you make that happen? Uh, And that's what this company was working on. It sounded like just a really fascinating uh, technology challenge. Um, So I moved out uh, to San Francisco and I was working at that company. Uh, And that's where I met my two co-founders. So uh, John Walsh and and Aaron Smith were two other machine learning scientists who were working uh, at that company. And... um, I, after a while, really felt the call back to, to, come, to, uh, to come to biology again. Uh, so that we, we, uh, we all left uh, that company around the same time and uh, decided to, uh, to join up uh, and, and start a new company to focus on building new machine learning technologies to solve problems in medicine. Amazing. I mean... When it, you know, I've I've had a lot of guests on this on this podcast now, and I think in in terms of you know a, a pedigree background to become a health tech entrepreneur, you know, biophysics, um, machine learning, computational biology, you've you've kind of done it all, you know, as, you know, coming from academia as well, then working at Pfizer in a corporate, then working at what sounds like a VR startup. It sounds like you experienced, you know, all aspects of that kind of the health tech ecosystem relatively quickly. I mean, did you always have an eye on becoming an entrepreneur? Is it something that you thought was always deep inside you that you wanted to solve these problems and build a company? Or was it something that you kind of stumbled upon later down the line and thought, ah, there's a problem I need to solve? How did it sort of come to you being an entrepreneur? Yeah, uh, not at all. I did not set out to be an <laughs> entrepreneur. I, I mean, really not at all. Um, <laughs> okay. I, uh, um, I'm interested in solving problems. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, to an extent, starting a company is, is out of frustration. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, I was working on these problems when I was an academic, you know, and when you're in academia, you write a paper. And, every, and there's no collaboration. There's no collaboration between anybody, right? It's a very competitive environment. You write this paper, and then a bunch of people criticize it. And then, <laughs> and then, and then eventually, after you know, like a year and a half, it gets published. <laughs> and then you have to go around and argue with people, right? Face-to-face argue with people. <laughs> try to convince them that they should like your paper. And it's just a struggle, right? And yeah. the progress is just incredibly, incredibly slow, right? So if you're, I was thinking, you know, you, know, you, you do all this work and then, you know, you don't really change anything. That, that's mm. kind of how I felt about it. And I, that, I found that very frustrating because a lot of what I was, you know, when I look at biology research, 
right? And this is biology research kind of across the board, uh, not just medicine. Um, you know, the use of technology, the use of computational methods is like 10 to 15 years behind where it could be. Uh, the adoption yeah. is so slow. And, and, and so I, I really felt like frustrated that it was too slow, that it was difficult to, to break into things. Um, then, yeah, I go to a big company, you know, thinking like, oh, well, we could try, you know, this, uh, you know, maybe it'll be better, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I think to an extent, when you think about starting a company, what is kind of what, what, what drew me to it is it's one of really the few ways that you can marshal a lot of resources and a large group of people in a collaborative way to solve a problem, right? And to actually push it out there into the world where you get backing from lots of people who want to see it happen. So it's different. It's, it's different from, you know, in a big company where you move very slowly and it's different from academia where it's so competitive that you just are in gridlock. Uh, and I think that's what's really attractive about, you know, startups is that you, you really have that ability to get a team of 15 or 20 people to get backing uh, and to, to really drive uh, a technology solution forward. So that's kind of what, what I think led me to this path is, is I kind of view it as the path of last resort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You sound, you sound very, very similar to the way I think about this stuff. You know, you sound very impact driven. You sound like you, you want to make a difference. You don't just want to talk about the problem because it was the same for me. Even, you know, even when I was, a, even when I was, a, I was a doctor, you know, it wasn't enough for me to treat the patients when I knew that the system was too slow. We could all treat so many more patients if I just improved the system. And that said, eventually, you know, 10 years, 15 years later, it ended up where I am now. But it started with that, as, as you've just said, it started with a frustration as to why, why does it have to be this way? Just because someone says it has to be this way, that there, there is another way, there are many other ways. And just like you as well, you know, and when I started looking and speaking to the technology companies and you look, you started looking at other sectors as well, like beyond health that had done all this stuff. And you're like, Oh my goodness. Like, why couldn't, why couldn't we do this? Like we could do all this. Surely we could do this. And it seems that, yeah, often you do have to do the learning and create a company in order to try and drive that change, which I think is, is incredibly, it's fascinating to, to learn all that stuff, but it's also really hard, right? Because like me too, you, you, it seems like, you didn't have that kind of training or, or told how to run a company or, or, you know, you weren't doing it from the age of five and, and like some people were selling sweets and the rest of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, how, how did you find the early days then sort of starting the company? How did you find the problem that you wanted to solve? And yeah, tell me about going from an idea to reality. Yeah, that's a, uh, it's, it was an interesting, um, sort of, uh, progression, I guess. So, you know, the early days of the company were, you know, uh, <laughs> me and John and Aaron, right, on our couches, right, <laughs> writing code. Like, <laughs> there was no company, right? There, like, there literally was no company. Yeah. Uh, we were just, you know, uh, working on stuff. Um, uh, essentially, the way that we were thinking about it at the beginning uh, is really just purely from a technology standpoint, right? So, um, if you look at, where machine learning has been successful, right? Over the mm -hmm. last few, over the last even 15 years, there's really only three problems that it's worked for, three classes, right? So one are problems involving images, right? So recognizing objects yeah. and images, things like that. Second one where it's gotten a lot better, it still has a long way to go, is, is natural language processing. So understanding yeah. natural language, right? Um, and the third thing is playing video games. 
plays video games now really well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, there are at real applications, including in medicine, of those three types of uh, problems. But yep. um, there are lots of problems that are not captured by those three things. And the big tech companies don't work on them because they don't care about them, right? They're not, they're not in, their, in their purview. So, uh, you know, our way of thinking was, you know, let's start with the kinds of data that we would get and think about instead of trying to take these existing solutions that were built for image recognition or natural language processing or video games for other problems, we would have to build a new solution to try to make use of these kinds of data. And so when you, when you think about what you need to be able to do with health data, the state that it's in, which is that it's much messier than data pretty much that you get Indeed. in any other space, um, you really think about needing new machine learning methods to deal with it. So the early days were, were not so much about uh, a specific application, like in clinical trials or in these other areas. It was more about, you know, building a tool set, building machine learning tools that would let us ask questions from clinical data. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so, we, so we raised small amounts of, of funding uh, from a venture capital firm called DCBC. Uh, pretty much on close to day one, like uh, maybe like a month or something after we uh, after we actually formed the company. Wow! And how did um, just out of interest on that? How did you get that investment then so early on 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 the back of an idea? Is it was it? Do you think your your pedigree as individuals and what you're trying to do? Did your investors buy into that vision? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, it ha- you really have to ask them. Uh, to that. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, um, they definitely bought into the vision, literally. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a couple things, right? I think that uh, you have, uh, oh, so we had code. So that's one thing. Okay. Right? We did have have software that did stuff yeah. and it did things better. And you could see like, so uh, we right, were going fine. in there with with some, with some something. Um, but we, we did not have a business plan or anything <laughs> like at all. Yeah. Uh, we were like, here's software. It'll be good for learning from clinical data. Um, <laughs> and that's gotta be useful. Right. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, yeah. And I think the team, you know, we, you know, we all have, you know, uh, pretty strong academic backgrounds, you know, everyone. So myself and, and John there and all PhDs uh, in different areas, uh, sort of roughly of physics. So John was doing high energy physics, uh, looking at, you know, uh, Higgs boson kind of experiments at the LHC. Oh, wow. um, and Aaron is actually a pure mathematician, but he was working on some uh, areas of geometry that are related to physics. So uh, we, we all, you know, had these strong academic backgrounds, but we'd also all worked in industry. I think that that's often uh, getting that sort of combination of people who have yeah, but have also that, worked in industry is is something that you're looking for. Yeah, um, I mean, even even the way you're talking about it there, I mean, the the strength of that team is very very good, right? It, it's clear that you guys have have got enough expertise, complementary skills, and the fact that you went in there having already built something, clearly the capacity to actually build something much greater and better if there's fuel added to the fire, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'd also worked together at that point for you oh, know, crucial. A, yeah, a long exactly. time, right? So it wasn't like we just met each other. So yeah, we basically spent the next 18 months just building technology. I mean, to be honest with you, uh, we spent mm. 18 months or something building technology. Uh, and we didn't do that, though, in a vacuum. So we had a few different things, problems in the space that we thought this, this kind of machine learning approach might be useful for. 
Uh, okay. So one of them was what we ended up doing. So looking at really clinical data and thinking about you know applications within clinical trials. Um, another one though was looking more at genomic like data, uh, transcriptomics data. So looking at the expression of different genes measured either by RNA or or by proteins or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just started getting some early partnerships with some pharma companies, try, trying it out on different problems is basically what we did. So we mm. did, uh, we did some work, uh, early work looking at, at Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, and, uh, that, that actually ended up, uh, really going into the direction eventually to, to what we ended up doing. But we also did a, uh, a project looking at, uh, RNA sequencing, um, with Pfizer that we, we ended up publishing a paper on about, uh, Paper took a long time to get published, but it just got published a few months ago, maybe like three or four oh, months nice. ago. Um, and uh, and then we did some other work with some smaller uh, biotech companies and various kinds of problems. So we were trying to uh, kind of experiment to see, you know, where would this machine learning technology that we built, where would yeah. it have the most impact? But also you're learning from customers that way, right? Because we're actually working yeah. and partnering with pharma companies along the way and getting feedback about what problems are interesting. So I think that doing it that way, we kind of, you know, we were reading like the lean startup and thinking about being a lean company and iterating and, you know, getting that, you know, uh, build, uh, you know, test loop yeah. as, as uh, you know, as, as tight as we could. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the way we approached it. Um, we basically did that for like a year, year and a half until we really had, had built a technology where we could demonstrate um, uh, that there was going to be a market for applying these methods within clinical trials. Uh, and that, yeah, that took probably like a, like I said, like a year, year and a half to really get that vision uh, for like mm. the, what the business plan was going to look like. Um, and yeah, then, then since, uh, then we kind of sort of threw out all this transcriptomics and we stopped working on all that stuff and <laughs> focus, focus on just this one thing that looked like we, where we could have the biggest impact. You know, it's, it's a, it's a funny one that because so often on this podcast, I, I talk about, you know, not being technology first and being problem first. And, you know, that being the right way to do things and the proper way to do things, you know, find a problem to solve first and be problem led. Don't try and crowbar the technology in, but this is slightly different, isn't it? Because this, it, it's almost in like in this, in this context, machine learning isn't a technology in in the way that I mean when I say those things in that we know that machine learning can be applicable to so many facets of healthcare just by definition of the fact that there is data everywhere. So we kind of know that there are going to be value propositions for something like machine learning because it is a wide definition, right, in terms of everything that it can do. So your sort of experimental approach does make sense. Now, I'm in danger here of, of crowbarring my own kind of, um, I guess, conclusion in because it fits the narrative. But I guess, is that the way that you see it? That this is this is more of a, a technology that is clearly coming in because it's just something that deals with data and produces, you know, elements that, that clinicians and everybody else can use. And therefore, it it doesn't feel like you're crowbarring a technology in, let's put it that way. Is that something you agree with? Yeah, I think you could go about it either way, right? When you start thinking about machine learning, right? If you have a problem in mind, 
then you may be able to solve it with the right machine learning tool. Um, yeah. I think one of the problems is suppose that you can't, right? If, well, if you come across a problem and the existing tools don't work well enough to solve that problem um, or, or they're not appropriate, you know, what do you do? Yeah, you know, then you're, yeah. you're stuck in this sort of situation of trying to uh, either sell a solution which is suboptimal, which I think definitely happens, yeah. um, or 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 trying to do some R and D. But now it's a really specific R and D, right? You're being like, "Well, let me solve this one problem." But a lot of times in research, that's just not how it goes. You set off trying to solve one problem, you solve a different one, um, mm. and you know, some some problems just are hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, uh, so I, I think that sometimes, but you know, when you get this intersection of science and not engineering, but science and company building, um, you know, you, you kind of have to be a little bit, um, flexible in where you're going to yeah. end up because science doesn't necessarily take you where you think it's going to, right. It's not building a website. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I've, I've said this on one other episode as well about, it's more of an artistic approach than a scientific approach to kind of use it, play around and see if you get ideas and see if you get traction, you know, and, and, and sort of play around with it from that perspective. It's more the way that artists will do things than scientists who, as you say, like to have a hypothesis that they're going to prove yes or no and, and go down, go down that route. So it's, it's interesting almost this, that it sort of blends the, the art and the science um, of machine learning to, to find the problem to solve that. That's really interesting. And so I suppose where this got you was, um, like a, a super cool term that I saw that grabbed my attention when, when, uh, Dana, uh, emailed me, which was digital twins in the control arms of clinical trials. And that phrase really got me that I was like, okay, like immediately when I heard that, I was extrapolating it in my mind of like, oh, I can completely see where, where this might be going. Um, I definitely want to go and speak to this guy on the podcast. So tell me what a digital twin is. Tell me what unlearn.ai is doing with digital twins. And I'm sure this will lead us into, into the future. But um, yeah, tell, tell, tell me all about that. Sure. Um, so the term digital twin, it's not actually something that we, we necessarily coined. Uh, this approach is used all the time uh, in engineering applications. So let's imagine that you're building an engineer and you're building like an airplane engine. Mm -hmm. um, what you would do is you, you would take the blueprints from that engine and you would build a computer model that enables you to simulate it. Uh, then you would have sensors uh, on the engine that collect data and feed it back into the computer model. So the goal is not to build just like a model of that class, that type of engine, but of one specific device that you're actually building. Yeah, um, And then you can do all kinds of stuff with that computer model that maybe you wouldn't want to do to the real engine. So you could try to put it under like extreme stress tests, uh, things like that, where, you know, you might break the actual device, so you don't want to do it, but you can simulate what might happen in those sure. hypothetical experiments. And I think that that's a really interesting way if you think about, you know, could we do that with people? Right? Could yeah. we build computer models of individual people? And then run experiments on the computer that we wouldn't want to do to that person in real life. Um, and that would be a really great way to learn about how that, that particular person might respond under all different kinds of, of situations. And so that's, that's kind of the technology that we'd like to build. So this digital twin uh, of a person. Uh, the problem, of course, is that you know, we don't have 
uh, blueprints for people, <laughs> right? <laughs> like we do for you know, things in engineering. So that's kind of where the machine learning aspect comes in. Surely you can just map the genome, right? Once you've mapped yeah. the genome, you've got, you've got the whole thing. You can just build it. <laughs> um, yeah, build this huge uh, uh, yeah, mechanistic <laughs> model that has every molecule. Uh, it, yeah, um, that's all you need to do, Charles. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we take this kind of machine learning data-driven approach. So the way that it basically works is we will, for a particular disease area, so we don't, these are not like pan, uh, all universal models. We focus right now, at least, on sure. uh, a group of people who have a particular disease, say Alzheimer's disease, yeah. and we'll collect uh, data, uh, individual patient-level data, where we can get very, very rich data. So we want to have as many different features, uh, characteristics of that person uh, as we can that are relevant for the disease. So not at every characteristic. Yeah, just, I was going to say, what what elements are you collecting? But I suppose then it's, as you say, relevant to the disease. So in Parkinson's, it could be, I suppose, anything from the usual, you know, physiological stuff to even, I suppose, the facial muscles moving and, I don't know, tremor. And I suppose it's loads of stuff, right? Yeah, it, of course. It depends on very much on the disease area, and uh, to for for us as well. Though this is more of a uh, more of like a business question, is it depends on adoption of that me measure, right? Sure. So we we like to simulate things that other people use. <laughs> is how yeah. I would describe it. So you know, we're usually looking at what are the commonly used measurements for this particular disease, um, and then we're trying to incorporate those kinds of data. Uh, there's also just regular data that is commonly collected for like everybody, right? So like blood tests, things like sure, that, that, sure. that we do as well. Um, uh, and we do do some genomic sort of molecular level data if it's like something that's commonly collected for that disease. Uh, Makes but otherwise, sense. we don't, don't necessarily do it. Um, but we get all, so all of those features and we want them longitudinally because what our goal is, is to be able to simulate how a person changes over time, right? That's the, really the only thing that's in, interesting, actually, is that, you know, you don't want to look about simulating different kinds of different people. We're, we're looking at saying, this person, what's going to happen to them in the future? So we get these data where we'll get, you know, maybe 10,000 or so uh, patients um, where we have lots and lots of information about each patient, uh, both at each time point, but then over time. And then we, we basically use a model uh, to uh, we use machine learning approach to try to extract the information of that from those data and put that into this computational model. Very cool. And so the goal then is for the model to predict what's going to happen next. To and I suppose that will influence clinical decision making. Is that the goal, or is it more to collect data for clinical trials in this sense? So we'd like to be able to ask what if questions about people. Uh, I, I, that's, that's really the goal. So like, and we want to ask that again, longitudinally. Um, yeah. So we'd like to say, well, what would happen to this person if we were to give them treatment A? Got it. Uh, what would happen if we were to give them treatment B? Got it. Um, and one of the things, so, you know, that's kind of what we do. And we want to ask like, everything about that person. So we want to say, what will their medical records look like? Uh, if, we, if, if we give them treatment, hey, what will their sure. records look like over the next year, two years, something like that? So really, really detailed information. Um, uh, we do this in the context of clinical trials, I would say for, for three reasons. Um, 
One, obviously, is that there's a market-based reason, right? And there's a huge need because yeah. of how, um, you know, just how slow uh, and expensive clinical trials have become. We're talking about things that are taking, you know, 10 years, sometimes yeah. five, 10 years, costing a half a billion dollars. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the 1% impact you make there is, um, yeah. is, is extreme. Yeah. yeah, and it, you know, and, and also just for the whole ecosystem, right? That, that, yeah. that slows the pace of medical research, right? And we would love yeah. to be able to speed that up. So, so that's one reason. Um, another reason is that it's a very clear what if question, right? Um, so when you take a person into a clinical trial and you give, let's say you give them this new experimental treatment and you observe what happens, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you want to then compare that to what would have happened if they had received the placebo, right? That's, that's, that's the direct comparison. Yeah, that you do. Nice. And so, uh, people call those potential outcomes, uh, sort of in the, the causal inference world. Um, and so, so you compare these two potential outcomes, what would have happened if they got got a placebo and what did happen because they got the treatment. And that tells you if the treatment was effective. Mm. Uh, so there's a really nice mapping between the goal of this model, answering those like what would have happened if questions and uh, the, what you're doing in a clinical trial. And the third thing uh, is really about the data, right? So clinical trial data is just so much better than data that you get out of a regular <laughs> yeah. electronic medical record. Oh, yes. Um, you know, it is standardized, right? So you have a standardized format uh, that people use to report clinical trial data to regulators. So it's not just handwritten notes. It's all structured and it's in a, a well-defined well -defined format. But also every patient gets the same measurements for the most part right? And they go in regularly and get those measurements, say, every month for two years. And you never get data like that just coming out of routine care. Um, and so I think that the, for those three reasons combined, the need, uh, the really, uh, I think, purpose of the technology lines up well, and the, the you know, quality of the data that you get from clinical trials, I think makes make clinical trials a really great application uh, for this kind of approach. Amazing. How close are you to this now? Whereabouts are you in this process? What is, what are you actually doing right now along these lines? Just sort of orientate us kind of where we are with this type of technology, because my, my question after that is going to be, where's this going to go? Because ultimately it sounds like there's a version of reality here, which is that you could run these models instead of doing clinical trials. If you know, hundred thousand years into the future or, or whatever it is. So yeah, orientate us where we are now and, and where we might be in future. It's difficult, uh, you know, in any time in anywhere in the short term to see how we could run for a brand new drug. If it's completely new, how we would, uh, like completely eliminate the trial yeah. because we don't, <laughs> yeah. we don't have any data on how people respond to a new drug right? Or a new device. It's brand sure. new. So this, no one's ever received it before. So a machine learning model is going to have difficulty making a prediction if it has zero data, right? Interesting. Um, but you always compare a new drug to the existing standard of care, right? Got it. Uh, so every trial, typically you would have 50, you know, most trials, 50% of the people receive the new drug, 50% of people receive standard of care, and it's randomly assigned who's who. But, you know, we can get data on, you know, huge numbers of people and how they respond to existing treatments. And so that's what we, that's the part of the trial that we're simulating. So we're simulating this half of a trial 
which are, which are the people who are uh, just receiving standard treatments, and usually plus a placebo. Um, so the goal uh, in the long term is is to start to decrease the number of people that you need to enroll in a trial. So can we replace uh-huh. uh, patients who would typically be enrolled in the placebo arm of a trial with simulated digital twins uh, of the patients uh, who are receiving treatment? Um, and if we could do that, you could run trials with you know up to half as many people, uh, which makes them you know twice as fast. Uh, you also get a lot more individualized information out of a trial like that because uh, the digital twin is basically a control group, but that's matched to one person, right? So now you're saying, okay, well, I can actually compare for this one person and say, you know, did the treatment actually have an effect that was helpful for them? Oh, I see. Um, which I, I think, you know, that's a very interesting, that's what we'd like to be able to get out of trials, right? Because treatments don't work the same for everybody. And, and being yeah. able to see that from these data would, would, would be great. Um, so there's an so, argument for you increasing accuracy as well, I assume. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we're bringing a, ultimately a lot more data into a trial, right? Because a yeah. normal trial, you only have, you know, a few hundred or maybe a few thousand people in it. But we're going to take data from tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of additional people and leverage those data to improve the trial, right? So you're actually using more data uh, when you make these decisions. Wow. Um, and so in, in the short run, there are, uh, you know, if we're talking about the next you know, couple of years, there are a few things that we're doing. So one is uh, lots of validation studies, right? So we need to, <laughs> we need to show uh, that these methods work well. Uh, We can do that looking at retrospective data, uh, trials that have been completed in the past. We can also look at, um, uh, you know, prospective data, trying to make uh, predictions about, you know, things, ongoing clinical trials. Um, And, you know, working with, with, you know, regulators uh, and and other stakeholders to make sure that these approaches uh, uh, are working, you know, well. I think then... uh, also in the short term, there are ways uh, in which we can add these data to existing clinical trials. So uh, you could imagine running a clinical trial basically that has three arms. So you have your typical actual patients who are receiving the new treatments, mm-hmm. you have actual patients who are receiving a placebo, and you also have this simulated the digital twin, yeah, digital control, twin group. control yeah. group. Um, so you end up with a three-arm trial, and then there are different ways that you can leverage those data to uh, still maybe decrease the number of patients in the control group, uh, although not not to zero, but just make them smaller. Uh, and that can make things more efficient. Uh, you can also leverage it just to increase the statistical power of the trial so that you know you have less variability and you have more confidence yeah. uh, that the treatment is, is really being effective. So that's a lot of what we're doing now, Ta- talking with regulators, working on these sort of three-arm studies uh, with, different, uh, with different potential partners. So we are actually uh, currently... Uh, working with a, a company who is developing a medical device uh, aimed at the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Um, they're running a, a phase three study. Uh, and so we are actually uh, working in a trial now, a uh, phase three study for Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, wow. Uh, using digital twins uh, as, a, as a control group in that study. Wow. And is that the first time you'll have done that in an, in an official study? It is, yes. Wow. So that's incredibly exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. When's that and, due to publish? 
Uh, well, the trial's still ongoing. Um, okay. So it will, a little I while. think, be finished. I mean, it's not too bad. Uh, it, it, I think the, it should be finished uh, around the end of this year. Wow. Um, so cool. we should finish it at the end of this year. You know, then do the analysis. So publication, hopefully, you know, next next year sometime. Wow. So that that that's a real that's a real milestone, isn't it? That's the first time a new piece of technology has been done in in, in clinical. Time. I mean, yeah, your your phone will be off the hook if you get some great results out of that. I think. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think that the value proposition here is really really clear, right? Um, yeah. If you could run trials more efficiently, I mean, much more efficiently, right? Like twice as fast. Oh, this is a huge, yeah. This is a real <laughs> stepwise change. I think that's that's one of the things that that has interested me here particularly because there are lots of people that try and innovate clinical trials, and again, you know, God knows how many billions, etc. That, that there's pl- there's plenty to go after in terms of savings for for a, a couple of points of percent here and there. But this this really feels like a stepwise change. It really feels like something that that could really impact every clinical. You know, it, it, it's it's really impactful. It goes to show, you know, that you guys spent you know you spent a bit of time playing around looking for the right problem to solve, and it seems like you, you've you've landed on this one for for many good reasons. Um, and I, I suppose. Yeah, how, how has the funding journey been for you guys? Because you closed your Series A recently, is that right? Yeah, it was about a month ago. Okay. And so how, what's that been like for you guys? Have you, have you found it easy for people to buy into this vision? Because it sounds, it sounds an easy one for me to grasp, you know, being in the space and understanding this somewhat. Um, uh, yeah, I, it's, I, I guess, how much was the Series A out of interest? Uh, 12 million. 12 million, yeah. So, you know, decent bit of cash to come in. How how was that raise journey for you? I mean, what sort of traction did you have when you went out to raise that? Because the re- again, the reason I ask this is because there's lots of people here in the UK at the moment, and it's raising Series A, and it seems that Series A in health tech, you know, this is pharma, uh, slightly different perhaps than a lot of the sort of digital health stuff. But it seems like Series A is where there's quite a lot of drop off. Mm-hmm mainly because people are, I don't know, they're expecting it. They try and do a pre-A, which is a term that's come up in the last few months for me. <laughs> like, There's lots of reasons, I suppose, that around traction and other bits and bobs as to why Series A is difficult. But yeah, I'm interested in what that, that raising journey was like for you around Series A and what traction you had on the way up to raising that money. This is, uh, so this is actually the third round that we've raised. Okay. Um, so, you know, you get into, you know, what are your name rounds and all that stuff, right? So our mm. first, like I said, our first investment round was, was very small, less than a million dollars uh, from DCVC. So that was our yeah. pre-seed round. Uh, it's like about three years ago. Uh, then uh, a little over a year, March of 2018, I think. Uh, uh, well, no, March of 2019. Yeah, yeah. We uh, we raised uh, a seed round, so that was a little over four million dollars, mm-hmm. uh, and that was also so that was DCVC Bio. So DCVC has a new a new fund with uh, partners from uh, from the uh, sort of uh, healthcare, both both pharma and and agricultural technology communities. Um, so uh, they led uh, sort of that seed round. Um, and then, yeah, this round was led by 8VC. Uh, that was uh, $12 million. And that was, that was just about a month ago. So I think that the journey here has been interesting. 
from my perspective, from the beginning to now. Because at the beginning, the stuff we were talking about, clinical trials, and, you know, this is a, we were saying, you know, I, even when I have to be, I said, we didn't really have much of a business plan and we didn't <laughs> clinical yeah. trials, one of the things we were talking about. Right. And no one, yeah. no one, to be honest with you, no, no one really knew what we were talking about <laughs> uh, in San Francisco, you know, you're like clinical trials. Like it wasn't, it wasn't an interesting market. Uh, I think yeah. a lot of people at the time. Um, and yeah, that's really changed over the last three years uh, in San Francisco. It's very noticeable where uh, you know, health and medicine technologies are much, there's much more uh, knowledge about, about this, these areas um, than there used to be. Um, so you know, the you know, previous, you know, previous rounds at the beginning, like our seed round, uh, you know, we're basically relying on the fact that there are investors like DCVC who are deep tech investors. Right, that's what they do. They yeah. want to invest in people building, you know, frontier technologies, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Right, yeah. um, and you know, so that's kind of what you're relying on. Uh, this now for the Series A, uh, really, it wasn't that difficult to raise. I would say, um, nice. We had uh, we had put three milestones that we had wanted to achieve before mm. uh, going to, to, to raise the round. So one is that, so our first indication, like I said, we're, we're, was, is an Alzheimer's disease. So we wanted to uh, you know, actually get into this, this sort of real milestone of let's, in, for the first time, add a control arm to a study that's made yeah. of digital twins in Alzheimer's. Um, so we, we did that. Um, we also wanted to demonstrate that this is not a disease-specific Kind of thing that we could do this in other diseases. So we published a, a paper recently on multiple sclerosis, taking the same kind of approach, uh, applying this machine learning data and building digital twins for patients with MS. Mm -hmm. um, so we can demonstrate that. And uh, you know, the, the third thing is we wanted to get some some real uh, traction uh, on the regulatory front because people are always you know uh, asking about what what will FDA, what will EMA uh, think about this kind of approach. Sure. So we uh, we had a, a meeting. Uh, with FDA um, in the first week of March this year to talk about our work in Alzheimer's disease. And that was a really great uh, uh, meeting with a, we got a lot of uh, supportive comments. So we basically went through those milestones and brought them to investors and said, this is what we, we did. And we were able to, to get it done pretty quickly. I also think it's very important that we could get it done <laughs> very quickly because uh, <laughs> the world has changed right under under really everyone's, it everyone's really I think has that, really quickly. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I know, you know, people are still investing now. Um, but it's harder, you know, it's much yeah. harder to raise now than, than it was. Um, so I think, I think that we got it done, uh, at a good time. Amazing. And Charles, just quickly, I know we're running out of time somewhat, but how, how do you see the future of this? What do you think, what, what do you, where do you see this company in, I don't know, three, four, five years time? Is it that you're going to have refined the digital twin so much in these specific areas? Is it going to be that you're going to expand into more kind of disease processes and areas? What is it that you guys are going to be focusing on um, in the next you know, let's call it three years with the, with the series A and probably series B by that point. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested in, I'm interested in your ambition. Cause I think it, um, I think it, I think it'll be fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I think the next two or three years are really about validation and building a track record, right? 
We, we want to make sure that when people read a paper, so if a physician or trialist reads a paper uh, that uh, has had a uh, control on it, that we've built uh, out of digital twins, that they that they are confident that they can believe the results. Right, everyone should feel yeah. that way. Uh, Do you know so- what? Even, even even that first answer that you've just said there is just it's so connected to the actual reality of of metrics you actually need to hit because it, it's very hard to kind of make that t- a tangible metric, isn't it? You know, people trust it when they read it, but actually if you're thinking about impact and you are very impact driven by the sounds of things, that is the genuine impact that you need quite rightly put. And yeah, it's great to hear you say that first actually, because that for me ultimately is, is where this has got to get to. And it's the same for like, I don't know, the prospective studies being done on software as medical device right now. It's like, okay, great. But do people trust it? Do clinicians trust it? Are they going to change their practice on the back of it? And I think, yeah, that's ultimately it, isn't it? It's getting people to actually change their behavior based on this, which makes it ultimately more valuable and used and more. And then everything's more efficient, everything's better. Um, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but that that was quite exciting hearing you say that. Oh yeah, but I mean, it's absolutely true, right? If you want, if you yeah. if you want to build a solution, uh, it's yeah. I s- said this to somebody the other day. It's not helpful to just build a solution in your basement. You know, <laughs> it's like that's exactly. exactly. You build a solution and never goes anywhere. That's not useful, right? It's only useful if you can get people to to use it and to adopt it. And to, that's that's what that's what useful means, right? So and you're so yeah. you're so right about trust. Like it's <laughs> it is just about trust with yeah. all, with a lot of these new technologies because ultimately it comes down to a person making a decision about something or a committee or. I don't know, nice here in the UK if they're going to mm-hmm. change the way drugs are used. But, you know, it ultimately comes down to decisions being made and, and trust needs to be there. So, yeah, yeah no, that, that's it's really cool to hear you say yeah, that. Absolutely. Um, and so I think, you know, that's what we're focused on for the next, say, two or three years is really building that track record, uh, you know, building the validation. Um, and I think once we have that, uh, because the approach that we take is completely data-driven, right? There's, we're not putting in any mechanism or anything like that. It's just machine learning applied to data. It, we're not constrained to particular disease areas. And yeah. so our, our goal would be, once we've built that track record, that validation, is to really scale this out uh, and start applying it across disease areas to see. And I think yeah, that when, when I think about this, you start saying, okay, well, what's five or 10 years out? What are the met- what's the metric then? I'd like to see the metric be the average length of time of a clinical trial. Like yeah. just across the board, right? Yeah. So if we're really working, if what we're doing is really having the impact that we want, then clinical trials will just uh, across the board be faster. Um, and that's really the goal that we want to achieve. So when you think that 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 time scale, that's that's really what we're trying to try and yeah. do. And as a metric, when is that more tangible than right now? Imagine if we could have a you know clinical trials ongoing at the moment for for a coronavirus vaccine that were half the time or a quarter of the time. You know, there's there's no there's never been a, t- a greater time where. Um, where this is in people's consciousness and, the, and yeah. the need for it, right? I mean, anything that's going to help along these lines is is obviously and in people's consciousness. Also, right? not just coronavirus. I think one of the things that people are forgetting about um, a bit, and it's understandable because it's very much on the front of mind as we're all sheltering, you know, in in yeah. our homes, uh, is you know, all these other diseases are still here right? Yeah. Um, they're all still here. <laughs> they're still going to yeah. be here. Once, like once yeah. we get a vaccine for coronavirus, people are still going to get cancer. Yeah. Um, and medical research on pretty much every other disease has almost stopped right now. Yeah. 
uh, because people can't participate in trials. Uh, you know, people can't go to work. Uh, that's interesting, um, yeah. And, you know, trials, so enrollment, there's, there are a number of things that are challenging. I, I think that for us, this is potentially also an opportunity because our whole uh, product is about saying that here's a way to run a clinical trial with fewer, fewer patients. <laughs> and people have found themselves in a situation now where they have fewer patients because of something else. And so, so hopefully that's, that's something that we will be able to help with. Not, not just, you know, maybe not for coronavirus. Uh, yeah, we've been asked about whether we could help uh, COVID-19 yeah. trials. And the answer is maybe we could help. It depends on the quality of the data uh, that, yeah. are, that, are, that are available. Yeah. Um, but, but certainly for these other areas where, where the trials have been disrupted, those, those are things that we hope that, that we can help with. And, you know, the same thing's true even outside of trials, right? I think that there's a lot of data showing that just visits to cancer clinics, visits to ERs for heart attacks, things like that, those are way down. But that doesn't make sense, right? People didn't stop having heart attacks. They didn't stop having cancer because of coronavirus. So there are people who just aren't making it to the hospital. They're not making it to their physician. And some of that could be telehealth, I guess. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, the gap seems, you know, serious. I completely agree, mate. There's, ER there's visits, lots that isn't you know? presenting. There's lots yeah. that isn't presenting at the moment that's going to present later stage down the line. It's just, uh, you know, by definition of the numbers, statistics alone tells us that. Um, and you're absolutely right. I think anything that's going to come along and help us change our healthcare system that means it's less resource intensive and can be done remotely and doesn't require people, you know, all these different things of which your company certainly fits into. It's just going to lead us down a much better path for the future. And I think, you know, necessity is the mother of invention for a lot of these things. I think the value proposition for telehealth has just been thrust in our face that finally, you know, it's got its value proposition on mass and everyone's going to use it. And I think, you know, along a similar line, there's lots of other innovations, <coughs> excuse me, like yours that clearly clearly have a place in a future and a world where people realize that, you know, in-person resources are actually, you know, slightly more expensive, valuable, not as necessary as they perhaps once were. And people are going to look into these different things. And I think, um, I've really enjoyed this child. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing about your company and your journey. Um, it's, yeah, I, I, I really understand what you're doing. I really, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it's so exciting. You've got this trial ongoing in Alzheimer's disease that's due to finish at the end of the year. And I genuinely mean this, that when, um, when that does finish, I definitely want to hear about it because I definitely want to write something in Forbes, whatever the conclusion, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or, or whatever's happened in between. I think there's definitely stories to tell and lessons to learn. So I'm sure it will be a resounding success. And I definitely look forward to writing about that. But I think, um, yeah, I, what the way that we end these podcasts, dude, is um, I, I hand back over to you briefly just to summarize a bit about yourself, a bit about what you're up to at unlearn.ai. And if you've got any asks of our audience, and bearing in mind we've got a, a huge reach of hospitals around the world, as I said, we're in 100 different countries now. We've got listeners in, um, entrepreneurs, people in healthcare, uh, clinicians, managers, everybody listen, investors, anybody listen to this podcast. So um, if you've got any asks of that wonderful audience, then um, by all means, close us out with that, sir. But yeah, over to you, over to you to close us out. Okay. Um, hi, I'm, uh, I'm Charles Fisher. Uh, I'm a biophysicist who has transitioned into machine learning research. Um, started a company called Unlearn AI about three years ago. 
after working at Pfizer uh, and getting experience into seeing how machine learning technologies could improve, improve uh, clinical trials. Um, uh, met my co-founders, John and Aaron, uh, doing machine learning research at a, at a virtual reality company um, and have built uh, really exciting machine learning technologies to create what we call digital twins of patients in clinical trials. And a digital twin is a computer simulation uh, of a patient. And it enables us to ask, what would happen to this particular person if they were to receive a placebo uh, and standard of care in the context of a control arm in a clinical trial? So that we can uh, run clinical trials where we have uh, essentially simulated control groups uh, matched to each individual patient so that we can get uh, much more individualized information about which patients are responding to the treatment, and so that we can run trials with many fewer patients uh, randomized to control groups to make them uh, much more efficient, um, while still providing uh, rigorous results that uh, we can be confident in. Uh, I think that as a machine learning company, when I think about what the audience uh, of this podcast could could help us with it. really two things. Um, one is that we are always interested in uh, learning uh, about potential partners who are running clinical trials and are interested in seeing how this approach could uh, improve uh, the confidence in the results uh, or make their trial more efficient. Um, and we're also interested in talking with uh, potential partners who uh, be them health systems or uh, pharma companies, biotech companies, really anyone who has access to you know subject level data that you know you are interested in seeing how how those data could be applied to make better, faster, more efficient clinical trials in the future. Um, so if you'd like to uh, talk about ways to work together, you can email me uh, at charles at unlearn.ai. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Charles. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, James.